Welcome to Cyber Insecurity, brought to you by eLearn Security. I'm Matt Kreischer, Content Specialist at eLearn Security. And as always, I'm joined by Neil Bridges and Jeff Goals. Neil is a cybersecurity veteran. He started at Cyber Command at the U.S. Air Force and has since worked with both Fortune 500, excuse me, Fortune 100 companies and Price Waterhouse Cooper. Uh, he's currently consulting through his company, Root Access. And Jeff is a named account manager with VMware Carbon Black. He has more than 30 years experience in the technology and cybersecurity sectors, helping clients around the world achieve first-class security protocols. Gentlemen, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you, as always. So in today's show, to we're going to talk about uh, specific TTPs and how they rise and fall, um, along with uh, a couple in- interesting things on the nation-state front. Uh, first, I want to talk about Emotet. Uh, after a five-month hiatus, the Emotet botnet came back with you know, what you could call a vengeance on Friday, uh, July 17th. There were about 250,000 messages sent from the botnet that day, mostly to the U.S. and the U.K., although the, the messages were sent around the world. Um, according to Ars Technica, Emotet is the world's costliest botnet. So I'm a little curious, A, why did it go away? And B, why do you think it's returned now? I mean, so, I mean, Imitet's a nasty, nasty. And Imitet is definitely the the influenza uh, of of the of the, uh, the the malware, you know, the banking trojans that are out there. It's a uh, it's it's pretty nasty. I know I've, I've spent um, countless months, years um, with with one of my previous incident response teams, literally chasing Imitet in, in in our environment. It's a uh, it's it's it truly is like the influenza of. Of, of, of banking trojans that are out there. I, th- I think this is, I think what you're seeing is there was a massive campaign, I think a, a number of months ago um, that, that really dismantled a lot of Emotet and people had figured out a lot of their, their DGA or their domain generation algorithms and, and really shut them down. Um, you know, and so I think that, that what you, what you're seeing here is you're seeing a resurgence of, okay, let's go back to the drawing board and, um, you know, look at our TTPs and look at our, our tactics, techniques, and procedures, and, and really decide on you know how we're going to come back and, and utilize uh, um, you know some of the, the things that the blue team has learned about how it is that we operate. I almost envision a bunch of red team engineers sitting out there saying, "Hmm, they uh, they figured out how we got in last time. Let's let's re uh, uh, redraw this up." They're sitting on a whiteboard and trying to figure out. Oh, I bet they're doing this, and I bet they're doing that. I I just think that uh, it, it never went anywhere. It just wasn't as effective. And so it stopped being uh, utilized as heavily as it was. And now they figured out a, well, and I think, another I think to way that to point, attack. Though, right? I think what people fail to realize is just how organized these organized crime folks are who are doing cybercrime. Um, you know, they have, um, and I hate to, I hate to go all military on everybody here, right. But they've got strategic vision seekers inside their organization who are saying, you know, our strategic vision is to steal billions and billions of dollars <laughs> as, as, as overly complicated. As <laughs> do they, do they, they publish they, their mission they, statements? They strategy to task yeah. plan. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. They got. They got a VP of marketing. Need, you know, we, we got to do better jobs, guys. Come on. Numbers up. <laughs> well, to to even make it less military and more, you know, private industry. It, these really are. We're going to talk about Revol a little bit later in the show, but these really are ransomware as service. I mean, th- these are. They're you know, criminal models. organizations with corporate structures almost. Yeah, yeah, they're business models. They 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 have they have strategic visions. They have operational objectives. They had tactical executioners, and so yeah, Jeff's. God, 
this is going to get recorded. Jeff is a little bit right. That's as much as I can really say it. Um, you know, they're, they're, they went back to the drawing board and they were like, how do we, how do we fix this? You warned me that you were going to be feisty today. I was not <laughs> expecting the left hook of a compliment. But you I mean, you, you look at this though. I mean, they send out 250,000 messages. Um, so, I mean, this is a, even from a, a botnet perspective, that's a pretty hefty number of messages that was sent out. Um, and then just the, the sheer propagation of how they were using this, uh, I, I found pretty interesting. I, I, I kind of get the sense that they were looking for unpatched or poorly patched machines and just kind of taking a wide breath of, uh, you know, what machine should we attack and kind of uh, shooting at a very large quantity so that they could then focus in uh, on, on a few of the smaller, uh, you know, less patched uh, environments. Um, you, further down on the article, I, I found it pretty interesting. They kept on uh, uh, talking a, a little bit about which ones were attacked and the, the ones that they just kind of glossed over were the ones that had 2FA uh, and any kind of uh, authentication that made it a little bit more difficult. So it was literally a low watermark kind of attack. They just, hey, whatever's easiest, let's go after that. And then, you know, either not worry about the more difficult ones well, uh, and, and or we'll deal with month, those later. This quarter even has been the quarter of vulnerabilities. I mean, between, between you know, SIGRED, between the F5 vulnerability, between the SAP vulnerability. I just got a notice again today for some more Cisco vulnerabilities that are out there that, that are starting to become weaponized. Um, you know, there are, there, this has definitely become the quarter of vulnerabilities. And so it would not surprise me if, if their resurgence is also tied towards, okay, let's start to capitalize on, on some of these beat the patch type tactics where they, they try to get malware out the door quicker than organizations are able to, to patch. And I think we talked about this like a couple of podcasts ago, right? Is just how long it takes an organization to, to patch. And so these beat the patch techniques um, really make them very successful. And this is how they get to be successful inside of organizations. And then they've, they've got some, just some traditional malware that they drop, you know, kind of as secondary and ter- tertiary to that in, in TrickBot, which is also another, you know, very, very, you know, insidious piece of malware. And then, and then Matt, to your point, you know, you know, could, could potentially, you know, I, th- I think we talked about this. If, if we didn't talk about this, then, then, you know, I think it's something we brought up in conversation when we were prepping for this podcast, right? Is that, you know, a lot of these malware, you know, cyber criminal organizations are starting to create cartels very much in the sense of where you've got multiple cyber, you know, criminal gangs working together to try to be successful. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see, you know, the success of Emitat get paired with, you know, maybe the the success or the insidiousness of Reevil or, or Maze on top of that to try to really, really do do damage to some more to some organizations. So Neil question, this is a little bit more off the wall, but like do you see that some of these uh attacking groups are saying, hey, we're trying to get uh, this organization or this country's eye off the ball of what I'm trying to do. It, um, start hitting these vulnerabilities over here, and they'll not have as many resources trying to to view my much more valuable. I, I kind don't of an think attack. we've actually seen anything formalized from a cyber criminal perspective. That's that's very much a. Um, a state-sponsored TTP, and I'll give you a real-world example. When I was first coming out of the Air Force in 2013, um, when when banking, you know, was was more of a focus than it is now. Not that it's lo- really lost a lot of its muster, but it was huge back then. Um, we actually saw. Um, I was working for you know a, a financial organization at the time, 
And we actually saw Iranian um, uh, DDoS attacks being used in the financial sector as a way to distract from SQL, SQL injection and cross-site scripting attempts happening on some of our other partner websites in, in the network. And so um, I don't think we've got too many organizations, you know, too many documentations where we see cyber criminals doing that type of activity, you know, on a large scale like that. But I think if we were to see the advent of more and more cartels, absolutely. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility at all. So let me ask you this. Who's going to win this round between Emotet and the blue teams? Do you see Emotet kind of, is this a one-off thing or do you see them growing stronger? And as Jeff mentioned, you know, going after the big fish next, now that they've re-announced their debut. So, so it's funny you asked that because I was literally just having a LinkedIn conversation with somebody who had, was commenting on, you know, a, a previous podcast, right. And, and asking why we keep seeing breaches. And, and I think that the, the cynical side and, and probably the slightly more pragmatic and realistic side is the blue team's never going to win. Right. Just you just need to accept that. Right. <laughs> just over there laughing. Like, <laughs> you are I such know. a negative Nelly. They'll, like, never, they'll, they'll never, never win. win. You're never going to win. The <laughs> hacker has to get it right once. And the way that I phrased it for this individual over on LinkedIn was the blue team. The blue team is just one component of it. A company, pick any company, pick Apple, Target, Home Depot, whatever it is. They have to get it right. On a technology side, they have to get it right on the people side. They have to get it right on a process side. They have to get it right on a political side. They've got to get everything to line up perfectly 100% of the time to stop an attack that only has to be successful in one of those avenues. I also want to say that while it, it may be true that that blue teams never win if we put it in a win-loss you know, metaphor – that doesn't excuse companies from not having a blue team. I mean, no. you know, companies that, that weren't prepared for Imitat were probably the ones that didn't have a blue team that weren't focused on these kind of attacks because, you know, you're never going to stop everything and new attacks will happen that you've never thought of, but a strong blue team and, and a, and a huge, and a, like a holistic, cybersecurity environment is essential right now. It is. It is. It's, it's risk. Sorry, Jeff, real well, quick. I mean, it's risk mitigation, no, right? The blue team helps you mitigate. I mean, you, you can stop 90% of it, right? But you're going to get hit with something at some point in time. Go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Uh, I was, just, I was just going to say, we saw this exact thing in this last, uh, in this last article. The, the fact of the matter is the uh, attackers just kind of glossed over, those that had uh, two-factor authentication and said, oh, that's that's going to take too much time and effort. We're just going to keep going to the low-hanging fruit. So, I mean, to some extent, you don't have to outrun the bear. You have to outrun the other camper, right? <laughs> you know, not to bring this to a, a, a really demoralizing subject here. But, uh, you know, if the attacker is going after uh, two of you and he can only attack one of you at a time and you are a smidge more difficult to attack, they're going to go but that's, to I the think easier that that's, person. I mean, while you're not wrong, that's a terrible, terrible precedent for, for CIOs and CISOs who are listening <laughs> to this call right now. Because, you know, when you when you roll it in the concept of some of the um, the, the Ponzi schemes or the pyramid schemes or the, the multi-level marketing schemes that some of the big fours put you under. Right. And, and I say that with all due respect to my friends at, uh, at PwC and Deloitte and anyway. Yeah, tons of respect. I could, I could, I could you know, sense I mean, the respect. You, know, you don't want to chase like a, a maturity rating of three point two simply because everybody else in your industry, the best they could achieve is a two point seven, right? Because that's just like that. That's that bare <laughs> Like, hey, we win. 
<laughs> we lost right. less we lost. than you. <laughs> we're not doing as bad as our competitors to see we're fine. <laughs> Here's, here's the thing, here's the thing. Well, isn't that a isn't that a little bit of the conversation that CIOs and CISOs are having with their boards? Is, but though? here's the thing: like when you go to when you get sued, you're not going to stand in front of that judge and be like, "Well, why did you let the bad guys into your network and steal all this personal information?" Because we weren't, as bad, as we weren't as bad as those guys. <laughs> I mean, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. I don't disagree, but there is also a reality check to this, and uh, I, I think. Um, you know, it's at least a good starting point and match your point. It doesn't excuse not having something in place. You need to have those things in place, not just as a deterrent, but, you know, eventually you are going to be on the hit list um, and you have to have a, a protocol and people and the right SOC team and the right tools set in place with the right procedure but that is, but, to deal but with. that is to deal with like the emitets because if we get back to the analogy, right? The emitet is the influence of the right. internet, right? Along with, you know, like Trickbog and Ryuk and even Maze and, and, and Reeve, right? Are all variations of, of that same strain of influenza. Your things that you're building inside your companies, they help, they're, they're your vaccines for, hopefully there's no anti-vaxxers on the podcast listening. Um, you know, those are your, those are your vaccines for kind of helping you protect against, you know, a lot of that malware. So moving on, because we've, we've mentioned a couple things already that we're going to talk about later in the show. Um, one of the things that was lost in the madness that's been lost in the madness of the coronavirus pandemic is the rise in DDoS attacks in the first half of 2020. Um, this could be because most of the attacks were actually quelled before causing any damage, but two attempted infiltrations are noteworthy. Uh, first, Amazon Web Services allegedly stopped the largest DDoS attack ever recorded. Uh, the company claimed it was a 2.3 terabyte attack that, according to SC Magazine, was 44% larger than any network volumetric event previously detected on AWS. Uh, and then Akamai also recorded an attack on a European bank that was 809 million packets per second. Um, DDoS attacks are usually recorded in bits per second, which makes this one sort of stand out. So, Jeff, what do you make of the rise in DDoS and the seemingly ineffectiveness of the attacks? Uh, again, I, I kind of see that there are some of these things that are uh, there. There's a a greater target that hasn't necessarily been identified yet as a result, um, but they've got to be probing for vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, even you know, my my son is into a show called White Collars. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, we've got to go through uh, and uh, you know watch all the shows that I've watched already, and then with my oldest son, and now with my uh, younger son. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting when uh, Neil, the uh, uh, the main character, I always talk about Neil, right? Neil Bridges. Um, when uh, Neil Caffrey is, uh, you know, figuring out how to uh, uh, do an attack on a bank, he'll do a test attack and see how long it takes for people to to show up. What is the response? How do you respond? And I think some of that might be where some of these are targeting is just to understand the process and the network and uh, the ability for some of these to respond. Um, you know, uh, attacking Amazon is that's a giant thing to be successful with. If you would have been successful, that would have been like, all right, major street, Greg, for you. But, um, you know, the bottom line, it's super difficult because they're so huge. 
a DDoS attack at that magnitude uh, is is something really really hard. It, well, to so so with. so not to I to take take apart a couple of those. Um, you know, you know, I think I think there is an aspect of using DDoS as a cover for another activity. Um, you know, in a case like this, they weren't attacking Amazon, most likely. They were attacking some piece of infrastructure that was being hosted on Amazon. Um, and, you know, you know, it testing, to your point, Amazon's ability to be able to block or, or respond to that DDoS attack. Same with Akamai, right? Akamai just acts as a front end, just like Cloudflare or anybody else. And so they were probably attacking some website that was behind, you know, that, that front end you know, to, to see what that response was, but there's a massive business in DDoSes just from a, I hate this entity, knock them offline. You know, I, I hate to go back to my <laughs> Minecraft example. Right. But that, that's really like, there's a massive underground, um, you know, marketplace. Like if anybody listening wanted to actually do some really, really awesome, you know, side gigs in this pandemic, like go start you a DDoS or service on, on, on Minecraft servers and just start knocking people's Minecraft servers offline. Cause I mean, it's, it's, we joke about it, but there's, there actually is big business in saying, I want that website to go down for a certain amount of time. Think about if you're eBay, if you can knock eBay offline for an hour, how much money did eBay lose? Right. You know, eBay is kind of a big example, but, you know, there's rival, you know, e-commerce sites that are out there. Um, you know, people, when the first, when the Mirai botnet first came up, right, they were targeting, they used Brian Krebs's website as a, um, um, as a test website, just to prove, you know, somebody high profile that they could take it offline for that kind of that clout, that street cred to do. And so you, 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 you have to gauge DDoS attacks the same way that you gauge malware attacks or phishing attacks or state sponsor taxes. You know, is that a TTP of a threat actor, um, that you as an entity or an organization need to worry about? Um, you know, when I was, when I was working for the financial organization, DDoS is very much worth something we had to worry about. However, when I go to say something like a healthcare organization or an energy sector organization where you may just have like a, an informational website where you don't really have much on there, you know, a DDoS attack may not necessarily be, you know, in, inside your wheelhouse. I think the innovation comes here. What we see with DDoS attacks that make them awesome to, to understand are the, the tactics that they're using to generate this load of traffic on the internet. So like when DNS amplification attacks first came out, nobody even thought about, you know, dear God, I never thought that you could use a, a, a DNS packet and make it that big and, and use that as a way to, to, to knock a system offline. You know, same with Mirai botnet, you know, I don't think anybody really thought about the dangers of IOT at the time. And so what's really interesting is looking at how these people are, you know, using the same skills that an exploit developer uses to find a zero day in, in Windows or OS X or iOS or something like that, using that same mentality to try to find ways to create large volumes of traffic without necessarily needing the entire Internet to do it. Well, I think, uh, you know, later in the article, it talks about the the preparedness. You, you have to, as an organization, make sure that you're thinking through, all right, if we are attacked, what is our, you know, first, second, third, you know, uh, plan of action? Uh, who owns that? And uh, when and how do we bring in but appropriate I, I, help? I, I challenge organizations that like, you know, you as an entity – you know, short of having tight relationships with an Akamai or a Cloudflare or an AWS or somewhere like that, you know, you're going to be challenged to be able to do that. I mean, you can try to work with your upstream ISP provider, like a Verizon or an AT&T or something like that to see if they've got, you know, in-stream protections. But you have to remember, you're getting, you know, some unknown volume of traffic from some unknown parts of the internet that, you know, 
you have no idea whether they look legitimate or don't look legitimate. And so that makes it incredibly hard to identify kind of leading indicators of this attack coming at you. That That's why Akamai and Cloudflare and, you know, and, and Amazon are, are really starting to, to get really into this business is because they're seeing so much traffic that they can use their, my favorite terms in the whole wide world, AI and ML, right, to, uh, to, to try to figure out what an attack like that looks like so they can get ahead of it. Well, and then you've got the network providers that can either try to deal with it themselves, or they can just pass that Which traffic on to the do. end user. <laughs> it's it's yeah. I mean, it it seems uh, a little willy nilly. Of uh, well, it, hopefully the network <laughs> provider is going to cover me, um, but uh, unless you have that uh, pre discussed with them and probably a contract to take yeah. care of that, they're not. So gonna... I'm going to use a Jurassic Park reference for the second time in three episodes <laughs> that that we've been doing this. But Jeff, if the I think, yeah. I, I think I used it in the uh, first one too. So if, we're three for if three. The Raptors are <laughs> testing the fences, like you're you're kind of insinuating, Jeff. What's what's the next step for DDoS attacks? I mean, if did do you think that these were successful, even though they were you know, mitigated? Do you, do you think that the the next step is a large scale attack that will be successful? Well, I, th- I think this is part of the tabletop exercises that have to happen, and some red teaming to start putting the test to your own environment, um, you know, just like we talk about uh, having a pen test done, right? It's that That's just standard operating procedure now to see where on the scale of good and bad you are from being able to protect against some of these things. And uh, I think some of the testing of the fences has to include DDoS it, that's, attacks. That too. is, while not inaccurate, technically hard to do, right? There's, you know, you, you can't have a red team that's going to be like, you know what, today I'm going to simulate a DNS amplification attack and, uh, and, 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 and simulate that, that on our own environment. No, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the same as a red team uh, attack, but you can put yourself through some you, you uh, DDoS testing. And, There's and tons you- of simulations <laughs> out there. <laughs> I did. You just I know, talked I know about what it. you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but but I, I do think I think your your point about tabletop exercises is valid. I think, but again, I, I think I, I I this is one of those times where I probably have a little bit more conservative approaches. You know, you you rarely can do anything about a DDoS attack, right? You you as a victim don't have a lot of recourse. And so you're either reliant on your upstream network providers, you're either reliant on a cloud front you know, like Akamai or somebody else to, to help you, um, or you're just riding out the storm until it's over. And so like, if you're looking on where to put resources and where to put time, really ask yourself, is that a threat actor or a threat vector, you know, that you're concerned about? Because if it's not something you're concerned about, then I think on your, if you're looking to prioritize your work streams, that's probably pretty low on the list. So before we move on to our next topic, I do feel like I'm legally obligated to say that eLearn Security does not advocate for getting a part-time job during the pandemic DDoSing Minecraft accounts. Um, please do, please my, do my, not do that, and please do not you know think that we told you that. Matt, Matt were you just getting texts my, my, from your lawyer My, my or views are my own and do not reflect those of the people exactly. around me. I'm working as my own lawyer in this instance, which uh, if full represents a full You stayed at a Holiday Express last night. I'm, I'm good. Uh, yes, so to yes. move on to our next topic, uh, we've mentioned Revil in the podcast already, but uh, Revil hackers infiltrated Telecom Argentina, which is 
one of the country's largest internet service providers. This happened on uh, the weekend of July 18th. Um, and this was a basically used their Revil ransomware attack to take over the company's network. Uh, they're now asking for $7.5 million uh, in ransom to be delivered through Monero cryptocurrency to unlock the encrypted files. Now, the attack did not affect any internet services. However, uh, the hijackers were able to get into internal domain admins and spread their infection to about 18,000 workstations. Um, like a few other hack organizations, and this is something we've talked about before, Revil is known to release sensitive information if a company is unable or unwilling to pay the ransom. Uh, so Neil, what can you tell us about the attack and its aftermath as it's ongoing right now? Uh, oops, is the short answer on the attack? <laughs> um, that's insightful, that's, yeah. That's yeah. insightful, Neil. Everybody, everybody all across the interwebs is going, Wow. <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they targeted Pulse and Citric. Sorry, we just got done talking about like, you know, an attacker having to get it right once. Right. This is Pulse, uh, Pulse uh, uh, vulnerability and Citrix VPN and gateway vulnerabilities, which are at least I think Pulse is four months old now. I think that, that vulnerability is something like four or five months old. You know, Citrix vulnerability is a couple months old, too. So, you know, this is an example where who knows what Argentina Telecom was doing right. Maybe they did everything right, except that that we get back to this maturity conversation. Right. You know, the bear just happened to be faster <laughs> than they were when it came to their vulnerability management yeah. program. Um, and, and that's where it caught up with them. They probably had all the right policies. Maybe they had all the right incident response team. You know, who knows? Maybe they responded to this thing, you know, in an amazing fashion. Who knows? But their vulnerability management program just wasn't faster than the bear. And so that's I think that's the the huge aha moment with this one is if we're going to keep going on the the really crazy analogies that we've been using all, all stream. Right. You know, that's what we're looking at. I think the second thing, the thing that I think is is very, very interesting is the demand for Monero. Um, and, and in some, some, you know, some topics that we've talked about before and just in terms of Bitcoin and how hard it is to, or how, I mean, how easy it is for the FBI, um, for the IRS even, um, you know, Matt, hope you don't mind me doing this, but like on the stream that I did a couple of days ago, I talked about just like the Bitcoin analysis that some of these organizations were, were doing, um, to try to track down like the Twitter hackers and, and the Bitcoin addresses they were using for the Twitter hackers. These guys have chosen specifically to go to Monero, which is a very, very, very known and, actually admittedly by the FBI, one of the hardest cryptocurrencies to actually de-anonymize and find out who owns that, that crypto. Um, I think that's, that's an aha moment where it's like, okay, so now some of these ransomware, um, you know, cartels like Revil and potentially Maze in the future, somebody else is going to start moving to some of these more secure cryptocurrencies like Monero, um, you know, for their, for their activity, because they're feeling some pressure from law enforcement or, or you know, other organizations like, uh, like Coinbase or um, coin analysis that are starting to do a lot of, a lot of deeper analytics on Bitcoins. Well, it, what I found interesting about this is uh, they actually think that uh, the attackers already owned Monero, because this would uh, literally move yeah. the stock price of Monero, uh, this, uh, this this one attack. Yeah. If they actually paid 7.5 mil, they'd have to buy it when the stock yeah. price would literally yeah, this is This is an influx spike. of hard cash into the Monero stock price, if you will. Yeah. This is an instant capitalization of the, of the currency. It's almost the underground funding, like round of funding, basically. This is this is the Fed printing money yeah. right here. They just go ransomware somebody and make make a company put seven and a half million into Monero. <laughs> 
exactly. <laughs> hey, my uh, my Monero account just like uh, yeah, went yeah. up forty eight percent. Those are the two Love big it. ones that 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 um you know that that really stand out to me on this one. Uh, other than the fact that you know again, it's it's you know it's the bear example, and it, and it should also be. You know, we're, we're gonna have we're gonna have ten ten shows from now. We're just gonna start <laughs> mentioning the bear, and a new listener is gonna be like, they're gonna "I have no idea what they're talking about." They're gonna talking about you. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. You said you were gonna be feisty. And I, I was waiting also for to mention Neil. There we Neil, go. You said that you know Argentina, you know the telecom Argentina could have been doing everything right, and you know maybe have a few issues with patching here and there. But you know the other thing is is that. It, it again is an employee opening a malicious email. It's it's that human factor being. I, I don't want to say the weakest link because it's it's hard for me to say. You know, humans are 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 you know weak link, but it, it is something that you know when you have cybersecurity programs that are sophisticated, but you are not testing your employees, that you are not. Um, you know, employee, you're not doing training on the cybersecurity and for your employees, then this is, this is the threat that you face. But without, without, again, I hate to turn cynical Neil on you. Right. But, but, and again, I believe very, very much in security awareness programs. But again, if you've got a, a 45,000, 65,000, 110,000 employee company, you know, that's, it only takes one employee. And, and the probability that an enterprise of that size at a hundred percent of the time, every hour of every day can have every employee be perfectly diligent in every email that they receive is statistically impossible. Sure. And and I'm not I'm not arguing that, but again, it goes back to that that camper and the bear conversation of, yeah. you know, this is it's still essential to be testing your employees. It's still essential to be doing cybersecurity awareness because, you know water finds the easiest path. And if, right. and if you're making it a little bit more difficult, you know, even if you're, it's not going to work a hundred percent of the time, you're still making it a little bit more difficult and you're allowing that water to find a new path. Yep. Yep. I think, I think this one, the water found the, the vulnerabilities. Bolts mm-hmm. and Citrix. Uh, so for our last topic, there's some interesting news in the nation state front. Uh, first, it appears that a video is accidentally uploaded onto the open web. See, this is where, this is where I say oops. Uh, and, and, and the reason I say accidentally and the reason that Jeff says oops is because it seems to have been a video that was uploaded by Iranian hackers by that is showing essentially recording an Iranian hacking operation. And this showed up on the open web. It was picked up very quickly. Um, you know, that, that is more of the Benny Hill side of the nation state. So, so doesn't inside, uh, you know, a, a, an attacking organization who, who, have who insider threats? I mean, we could say, <laughs> right. Well, here's Was this intentional? This is incredibly, incredible right? rabbit hole here, right? Because, you know, we, you, who, who's to say like, without sounding too, too cynical on this, right? Russia, China, and Iran all publicly admit that they allow their civilians to conduct offensive operations. And then sometimes they do it for the government on the side. <laughs> this feels more like an OPSEC <laughs> fail than an insider threat problem. <laughs> somebody was like, Oh, I've got to train somebody how to do an offensive operation. And so they put it up on yeah. a clear. This, this is just easier for me to, to do it some this classified way. System. This yeah. is an OPSEC fail. <laughs> so, and it does seem. A, this, this is, is a shadow this, IT gone. 
well, but, in a but positive way. It's a double on negative. The NSA side, right? <laughs> the the you know the the CIA hack, right? I mean, you know, cases in point where that's an organization where they were doing clandestine activities and and failed even basic security procedures. And and while I'll say that this seems to be more on the Mr. Bean side of things, uh, th- there is a, a a bigger threat, which is essentially that so the U.S., U.K., and Canadian authorities announced earlier this week that Russia's cybersecurity unit is attacking organizations involved in COVID nineteen vaccine development. Now this is government. This is you know government operations. This is private industry. This is you know pharmaceutical companies. Uh, clinical research companies, Russia seems to be going after organizations that may have insight into a vaccine in order to steal IP. Now, there's a tendency to look at both Iran and Russia as nation national security threats, and there's no doubt that they are. But what I'm interesting and what I'm wondering about is how, you know, actions in Russia and Iran affect businesses as well. I mean, like I said, the, the companies that Russia are targeting are mostly private industry. Well, but the the difference is, I think if I recall correctly, I think the Washington Post article that I I sent to you along with this actually comes out and says that we as a nation have said that, you know, we don't consider this as an act of war, right? That this is happening. And and I think that that's almost as 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 awkward of a conversation, right? Is like we know that we're getting our secrets stolen, but we're not going to call it an act of war by another nation state. Um, and so, you know, you, you, as a private business, I, I think if you're Pfizer or, or, or Abbott or, or, you know, you know, AbbVie or anybody else like that, you're looking at this going, well, I, I guess I'm out here on my own trying to defend myself from, you know, from from Russian FSB. But at the same time, the National Security Agency and the U.S. government won't share any of the TTPs or secrets or signatures with me that they have on the FSB because they're worried about, you know, burning intelligence. So now if you're AbbVie how do you weigh that threat, you know, in your, in your risk management conversation and in your budget conversations with the board? Yeah. One of the interesting things that I, I think about this is you're right. The U S is not going to claim that this is an act of war, but when you talk about cybersecurity insurance, there's certainly the possibility that oh. insurance providers are oh. insurance providers are talking about this as an act oh, of war. Yeah. You went so, there. I, uh, you know, while yes, not an act of war, could it be seen in the eyes of cybersecurity insurance as an act of terror? Until the, until anybody at, at, at and, and I'm not going to call it a specific cyber insurance company, but but until somebody from the, the, the cyber insurance industry is sitting with the U.S. Congress when they make a declaration of an act of war or an act of terror, I don't think any insurance organization uh, should be deciding on insurance policies based on their own self-proclaimed definition of those two things. And I want to I want to make sure that to bring up why why I bring this up. I, I I'm not doing this to criticize cybersecurity insurance, and, and you know it's certainly a, a, an option that a lot of companies are interested in right now. But what I'm saying is, is that cyber insurance isn't doesn't take the place of a cybersecurity team. You, you know, if Abbott or AbbVie are infiltrated and IP is stolen from them there's you're not guaranteed to collect any money from insurance because nation state actors are involved. I see Jeff one Jeff's just like eyeballing this one. He's shaking his head. Yeah, I know he wants I, to jump in on this. Well, I, 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 this is a board level conversation where they say, Hey, do we have cyber insurance? And they think they're covered, right? 
This is uh, people that are making decisions about uh, what our coverage is, what our security stance is, and uh, you know, not to say anything negative about them because their their job is really hard to focus on running the business and then oh by the way making sure that uh, uh, that they are covered from some of these really intricate facets. Uh, of their business that, quite frankly, you say, is it nation state? Is it uh, active terror? Are we covered for either one of those? How are those determined? There are so many different things that go into cyber coverage. And should you or should you not be covered? I'm just wondering when someone comes out with a blanket cyber policy and says, it's going to cost you X number of dollars, five times more than a normal premium, but I got you covered. Right. You know, like you just wonder if that's like the next step of this, because it seems like uh, with this, you see in the news, uh, there aren't any large payouts of cyber insurance that hit the news. There's a lot of lawsuits that hit the news. I I don't think I mean, but if I had to guess and and, and I'm I'm not going to put my experience in cyber insurance against Matt's who's, who's been in that business and done cyber insurance. Right. But I've sat with Lloyd's and I've sat with Aon before. Right. And, and I actually wrote about this in LinkedIn a couple of years back. Right. Is, is I think that the folks who benefit the most out of cyber insurance are the, the companies that can't afford whenever there is a cyber attack. And even if we're not talking about the theft of IP, let's think about like business email compromise. Um, I've been part of, of incidents, right, where business email compromise has been anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollars to a couple million dollars. There's organizations that, you know, they have to, they, that money still has to be recovered somewhere else. And if you're a, a $50 billion organization or $60 billion organization, you can probably eat a hundred or $200,000. That's, that's pocket change. But if you're like a mid cap or if you're under, you know, maybe $500 million, that, that might actually start to hurt a little bit more from a revenue perspective and really start to affect, you know, that's the difference between you going 100%. public and, and not so, going and public. And so what, in my conversation with Lloyds and Aon, they were very open. They were saying those are the types of folks who actually benefit the most out of cyber insurance because a company, a Fortune 100 like like Microsoft or Abbott or AbbVie or, or Astellas or, or anybody else, um, you know, they're, they're going to eat costs like that. And they're probably even going to probably eat something in, in the million dollar range. So th- that's, that's where I think that's why we are not seeing those is because – None of those small companies whose probably reputation will get hit harder from having that type of compromise. Um, you know, that's why we're not seeing those in, in the news is because we don't see those insurance payouts. Yeah. One of the other things to think about is, you know, especially if we're talking about this Russia coronavirus uh, topic, Abby and, you know, the Abby, these, these pharmaceutical companies, they have they have indemnified themselves in a lot of ways with the the level of insurance that they have against lawsuits from cybersecurity incidents but you know the the clinical trial companies aren't the size of mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical companies they're they're often between 500 and 1200 employees and they are tasked with securing incredibly sensitive intellectual property often on a shoestring you know cybersecurity budget yeah. And PII. And so there there are not only HIPAA and, and regulatory issues that you have to deal with, but there's also the like one of these could kill your reputation with the big pharmaceutical companies that you rely on for, you know, for revenue. So even if you were able to recoup through insurance any sort of loss financially from that specific attack, 
you're you're now kind of branded almost. You mm-hmm. have that scarlet letter around you that you lost sensitive intellectual property. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is our show today. So, uh, gentlemen, again, thank you very much for attending and, uh, or excuse me, thank you very much for joining me and we will see you next week.